0: This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Yvonne Smith. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Yvonne is a hypnotherapist with over 30 years of experience working with abductees and contactees. She's the author of two fascinating books, which we will link to in the show notes, In this episode, we discuss the global scale and depth of the abduction phenomenon, perfection and flaws in hybrid beings, and what has been the most difficult part of Yvonne's career. But first, Yvonne, was there a crossing the Rubicon moment for you? When did it sink in for you that this is real? And what was it that you had to accept as being real?
1: Oh, yes. I... I do remember the very moment. I'll never forget it. Um, for several years I had worked with my client, Jesse Long, and I have permission to use his name. Um, his case is also in my book, both my books. Um, he was at the time working for the film industry here in Burbank, California, where, where I live. And so he began, um, coming to me for sessions because he said when he and his brother were young children, four and five years old, they remember something in their parents' backyard. They remember them walking to it. Um, But after that, you know, their memory is, uh, they don't remember much of anything else. Uh, Of course, they were very young children, but you know, they both remembered that they said there was a, um, a house being or a round house being built on the hill behind their parents house. And this was um, in Tennessee, where they grew up, and a man standing next to the house. And so they both, um, they were both in the sandbox, they got out of the sandbox and started walking towards um, the hill towards this man. And then that's where their memory stopped. So for several years, I'd worked with Jesse on his memory and um, bringing up you know, any hidden memory or partial memories that might be there in his subconscious. But he never told his brother, John, um, anything about his sessions because he said, "I, you know, I really wanna know if what I experienced is real. And I don't want to contaminate the case in case it was, you know, it is real. So, and at the time, John had no interest in um, exploring anything about UFOs. He had a young family at the time. He was building his own house. And, but one day Jesse called me really excited. He said, you know, John, he and I were talking and he decided that he, he wants to go ahead and and try hypnosis and see what happens. See what what he remembers. Um, you know, because their their conscious memory stopped right at the same point, which is not unusual for multiple witness cases. So um, we flew um, Jesse and his family flew me to Knoxville, Tennessee, where John was living, where he's still living. And I did a a few, probably at least two hypnosis sessions with John. And that's when I was, uh, you know, I was amazed because not only did their conscious memory at the, the same point, they picked it up, both of them, from this roundhouse was actually a craft. And this man, and they, they even both said, though, there's people working around this house as if they were doing construction. And this man had held up, as the boys were approaching, one, one brother said axe, the other one said hatchet. And that's when their memory stopped. But with, during the session, they uh, both were escorted into the craft. John was taken at, um, one side of the crap, Jesse was taken to the other, and, you know, Jesse had these, all these experiments and procedures done to him. John could hear him crying, and when John was in hypnosis, he said, uh, I'm really worried about my brother, but they're telling me um, that he's okay, without even You know, he said they're answering my questions, but it's, you know, it's all telepathic. John also mentioned that he was with a alien being and he described him as a big bug. And I I knew what was coming because there's like, you know, hundreds, thousands of descriptions of the praying mantis being. And so I asked him what, you know, to please describe him. And he just said, you know, he looked he looked like a big bug. He was very tall, very large eyes. He wound up drawing the picture afterwards. Um, and, of course, it was the praying mantis being. But John had no idea of anything in the literature because he never, as I mentioned before, he never was interested enough to read about it. And back then, you know, there was no internet the way there is now. We didn't have all the information out there. There was no Facebook, there was no social media. So a lot of it was you go to the library, you know, and you buy a, a book on UFOs. But he was too busy with his family and but he just he was curious about, you know, just he knew Jesse was going to sessions and he was curious about, you know, wonder what if I'll remember anything. And we did a second session more information came through. And um, when I left Knoxville, I mean, I remember being on the plane. I wrote about this in my book, Chosen, and looking out the window. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if a UFO flew by right now? But I thought, you know, this case just put it on the map for me. You know, it was a double abduction of two brothers back in, uh, because 1957, and the information that came forward in the session, in the hypnosis session was, you know, there many similarities. So I knew that, you know, whatever is happening, and this was back in the early 90s, I knew that this was real. I knew this case was real. And after that, uh, you know, there were many shows about UFOs in the 90s. And it was, um, uh, let me see, uh, Encounters had contacted me and they found out about the, my case. So they flew me back to Knoxville to do um, more hypnosis, but on camera for the show. And they did a very, very nice segment on it. I believe it's on YouTube probably. Um, people tell me that my lectures and, and all are on YouTube which I never go to but um, they could you know, somebody could look it up but it's encounters and it was in the 90s. So this was the case that truly convinced me um, and I was pretty fortunate because I thought, well, you know the debunkers could might find it a little bit more difficult because it was two people. It wasn't just one person um, describing what they were going through. So um, the case still amazes me. I'm still in in contact with the brothers. And um, so that's, I, I just remember that very clearly.
0: What was it like for your worldview? How much of your reality shifted with that realization?
1: I came from a very open Minded family, both my parents were open to um, flying saucers. You know, they refer to flying saucers back in the fifties and sixties. My mom and I would talk about spirits and ghosts. My mom was very psychic, but but it scared her. Her her generation was like, you know, something would come up and she would see something, but she would push it aside because it scared her. She was brought up a Catholic and. Um, so you you know you didn't talk about those things back then, but um, so it wasn't like this was a total shock to me, and and because I had already gone to a lecture um, that Bud Hopkins was doing in the at the time was the Whole Life Expo, my mother actually wanted to go, and she asked if I would drive her, so we both went, and I was just amazed at. Um, you know, what he was presenting, his slides, and I thought, my gosh, I, you, know, uh, you know, if this is something these people are experiencing, it's unbelievable, um, and it was, you know, he he presented, he was so uh, credible, and we waited afterwards, and, and, you know, thanked him, and complimented him on the lecture, but it was something that um, captured my attention, and I just began becoming, you know, I I became more and more interested in, number one, the work of hypnosis, hypnotherapy. I had been interested in it before, but I didn't realize uh, it was used for regression, taking somebody back to a certain time and place in their life to relieve them of a trauma uh, or bring up hidden memories. So I just became very obsessed, I guess I could say now because it's not like me to be obsessed with anything. I usually get bored first before I become obsessed. But this I was I realized I need to know more information. I started going to hypnotherapy college. It took me 2 years and once you know once I graduated became certified as I opened up my practice and been in practice ever since. I've been doing this for 30 years.
0: Let's talk about reliving versus reviewing traumatic events. Is it necessary for a subject to relive the trauma? Is it necessary for them to re-experience the events in first person? Is it less effective, for example, to simply review the event as though they are in an audience or watching it on a film. I guess this is about abreaction versus witnessing or an observer approach. So on one hand we have a first-person approach where the subject relives it and then on the other hand we'd have a second-person approach where they watch it or view it but they don't necessarily relive it in their first-person experience is there a difference in the efficacy of these two modalities and when are each of them appropriate
1: you know it just it depends really on the individual i mean i will put someone in hypnosis take them back to that particular time and place and it could be way back in childhood like i did with the brothers 5 and 6 years old and it depends on how they will deal with the um, either reliving or, or witnessing say I have them go back I have them be there in that place whether it's in their home whether it was in their car what whatever wherever they they felt that they had that strange experience that they, They have to remember. Some people will go ahead and go through the reliving. Now, depending on how how they react, if they're really going through the trauma, and I will give them many suggestions about, you know, just tell me what's happening without experiencing fear or pain. The most important thing is for them to report what's going on, to verbalize what's going on. If they're Really having a difficult time, then I will say, okay, step out of that, you know, and just take a look at it as if you're watching a movie. Now, I've had done that a few times. I haven't done that, you know, um, on a regular basis, but a few times I have. um, But because of the suggestions and the techniques that I use, They're able to get through, and I think it's very, very effective of them reliving it. They're able to get through it, bring up all those hidden memories to the surface, to a conscious level, which we could discuss it, where it's not so frightening. So, um, and I haven't really, have not had to do that for a while. but. Everybody like we all handle grief differently. So we all handle trauma differently. So it's very, very, you know, it it, it's up to each individual. Like, and then when the people ask me, oh, well, how many sessions will it take? Well, first of all, I tell them it's going to take more than one or two. But as far as you know, you know, say you have 10 sessions and that's it. I mean, I've been working with people since I got into the into my practice for 30 years because this is an ongoing experience. It may lay dormant for a while, but something else will happen. It may throw them, you know, for a loop, like, oh, I thought they were done with me. I hear that all the time. But I caution them and say, you know, it doesn't stop. Um, Once you're in their program, they'll have something for you to do.
0: So basically, you read the cues of the subject. Yes. And when a certain threshold is reached, you might switch modalities. Uh
1: Yeah, it's just because, um, you know, say my suggestions for you're not feeling any pain, you're not feeling any fear. Don't work as well for this particular person. That's when I'll pull them out of that and just say, okay, just take a look, you know, on a screen and tell me what's happening. Um, But really, you know, it's really funny at you asking that question because i haven't done that for a while
0: do you feel the diminishment and the need for that over time is a result of you being so seasoned as a hypnotherapist or has the public become more sophisticated acclimated perhaps to these subjects because it's permeated the culture more deeply
1: you know even though people are Talking more about UFOs, you know, of course, lately with the Pentagon coming out with their report and before that with the Navy um, pilots talking about what they experienced, it's still not abduction. You know, we have another hurdle to talk about abduction in the public. So when I have clients coming in and I get at least two new clients a week, um, they... When they finally come in, of course, they're ready because they're tired of, you know, feeling afraid and, you know, having all the PTSD symptoms, not being able to sleep. Um, So still, I feel that it's my 30 years of working, you know, one on one, very intimately with someone with their... um, individual experiences you know of course i've had other multiple witness cases as well but it's not so prevalent not so out there in the public where oh people will go oh okay you know yeah i've been abducted and they say it over lunch or they say it over dinner you know and then they can come into a therapist it's just like I said, we have, I'm glad, I'm very glad that the general public is um, hearing more information about UFOs and pilots and so forth. Um, but I, I mentioned with my zero support group, you know, we have another hurdle to go over. And that's those craft flying around Those, they're not just flying around, they're coming down here and engaging with
0: us. UFOs, artifacts, radar data, trace evidence, statistics, that all seems to be the smoke. And then contrast that with the fire, which is the abductions, non-human entities, their motives, values, and objectives. Do you feel like that smoke versus fire is a fair way to frame it?
1: I think so. I mean, of course, the, you know, the radar readings and I, and I spoke with um, Kevin Day, who was the the specialist or radar operator at the time when they were having all these um, craft flying around, um, flying around them in the ship. Um, That's important. I mean, it's very important. And I thanked him for coming forward. I said, that's going to help all of us. But of course, Yeah, I mean, the fire. Uh, People, you know, people don't really want their little box of existence um, to be threatened. Um, And I know that a lot of people fear this because they, you know, they think, well, how, you know, how can somebody come into your home and how can somebody take you and you don't remember and And it's so complex to try to explain it. Um, Sometimes it sounds so science fiction when I'm trying to explain it, but it's just I have to go with where the research has been taking me. So, you know, I know that our government knows about abductions and abductees. um, But we're just going to have to see how... They're going to handle this. Uh, I know a lot of abductees have asked, you know, what if they want to round us up and put us in some kind of a holding area, which is a horrible thought. Hopefully not, but I know that they're interested in what abductees have been told, have been shown. So I don't know, we will see. It's gonna be very interesting now with more and more coming out about these craft and not, you know, they're not able to identify them. They're not Russian, they're not Chinese, you know, all of this. Those of us who've been working in the trenches, I mean, it's, you know, it's a it's a very big problem. I mean, this is worldwide and but all i can say is that's our next hurdle how the government's going to handle it i i i don't know
0: let's talk about the global perspective on these phenomena Mm -hmm. in 30 years how many experiencers would you estimate you've worked with and extrapolating from that and taking into consideration all of your colleagues their work around the world, what kind of scale and numbers do you sense we might be dealing with worldwide when it comes to contact and abduction?
1: Well, it has to be in the, in the millions. I mean, really in the millions. I've lectured in other countries and people have come up to me after seeing my slide presentation because, you know, a drawing or pictures resonated with them. Uh, it's happening exactly the same way in these other countries, they'll come up with their um, interpreter when they don't speak English, but they want to you know talk about what's happened. They've shown me their body marks and things that have come up unexplained. Um, you know in, in the late 90s, and I believe a second one in the early 2000s, the Roper Organization conducted a poll and which showed them, this was just in the United States but it showed one in 50 American adults from that poll from the questionnaire looked like they had one in 50 had experienced some type of strangeness, anomalous experience that could point to UFO abduction. So you think about one in 50, that's, that's a lot of people. So you think about your neighborhood, you know, you have 100 houses on your street, at least two people, two families will be abductees. Your co-workers, you know, you look around your co-workers, um, your family members who have never said anything. So and I've experienced that with people where um, I'll meet people and they'll they they get to know what I do and several of them have said oh I, you know I saw something back in the 60s I never told anybody because you know some of them I had a, a couple of MDs telling me and you know it's was like who do they who do they tell and this has been over the years so you know my banker just out of clear blue I was opening an account for my book and um, he asked what my book was about, the Coronado, that was the mass abduction. And I told him and he, the same thing. He said, oh, my God, I saw one over, you know, hovering over my apartment building. And so when you start you know, opening up and talking to people, they'll open up too. So I know worldwide it has to be in the millions.
0: Let's circle back to this fear experiencers have expressed to you that they might be gathered up and placed in concentration camps or holding centers. Granted, we're speculating here, but wouldn't there be serious pushback or consequences from the non-human entities if such a move were to be made by human authorities? I don't know that we've seen anything, but faint suggestions by these beings as to what they could do if truly provoked. But might rounding up abductees be sufficient cause for action of an order we haven't seen before? It seems like that would be a whole new level of chess.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I would, I would think so. I would hope so. Um, I know they have told abductees that they cannot intervene. They observe us, uh, but they have intervened with. Um, I know they're they're very um, concerned about our nuclear weapons. I mean, but in the '60s, they flew over several of our Air Force bases and turned off the ICBMs and then turned them back on. That's to me. That was a clear message of. <laughs> This is what we can do. And I think they would interfere if we started going into nuclear war uh, because that would affect the rest of the universe. But if they rounded up, you know, abductees, experiencers, uh, hopefully that they would do something to put a stop to it, Uh, you know, a blatant landing or... Having the government officials being abducted themselves and remembering it, you know, something. Um, but like you said, this is this is all you know, conjecture, and we're just talking. but um hopefully, nothing like that. I'm hoping that the government isn't so foolish to do that. I mean, we did that with the Japanese, you know, And now, of course, they they came out years ago with apologies and so forth. I mean, it's just it's just wrong. You know, we're human beings and um, having these experiences, you know, it's it's just totally wrong. So I'm hoping that they would just question people, you know, like um, detectives do get information rather than you know, try to hold them, you know, put them in a holding area and treat them like um, criminals. So um, let's hope for something more positive. Once more and more information comes forward, well, more and more people from all walks of life are starting to come forward uh, to talk about their experience because they're tired of hiding it and tired of living a lie and this is what i've been told personally from people and so once the public sees the quality of people how many people are coming forward you know this is going to this is going to be out there in the in the consciousness of you know society and that this is this is part of <laughs> everyday life really
0: On one side, experiencers discover there are entities taking them and being taken impacts every significant aspect of the experiencer's existence. Many or most experiencers at some point consider their situation and the entities taking them and wonder, why don't they just ask? Just ask us and we might be willing to help. The irony is that experiencers sometimes get similar mistreatment from shadowy, clandestine human interests who treat abductees and contactees like pieces in a board game. Again, why don't they just ask? Be straightforward, respect human sovereignty. But neither the entities nor humans in the secret realms simply ask in that way. And I wonder if you've heard frustration from experiencers on how they get hit from both sides in this high stakes scenario.
1: Well, you know, I think you're talking about my labs. Military abductions where the experiencer and I use abductee experiencer intertwined um, because some people feel they've been abducted, other people feel like they agreed to it, and so and they kind of go with the flow with it. But um, I, you know, I can understand and forgive the aliens more than I can humans like our military our government officials or whoever whoever is responsible for these my labs um, because they're human you know human to human why not ask but because this is still so you know taboo and clandestine and it's you know they've been uh, uh, of course they can't they're not going to be able to Um hide the fact and ridicule people for having these sightings any longer because of what's been coming forward. But like I say abductions is a whole other um, ball game on this. And with the aliens, um, we don't know why they'll just you know sit down with someone and say, can we take you tonight? But I know uh abductees have been told that you're not ready to experience everything like consciously um you're you're not ready to go through it you know, and totally remember everything now i've had a couple clients that have said they kept asking i want to know i want to be conscious i want to know what's happening to me i want to know everything And I had one lady that um, she had asked and she had an experience one night where she saw them coming through her sliding glass door and she was absolutely terrified. I mean, she got on the floor, she was trying to hide. She was absolutely terrified seeing them coming, coming towards her. And she said, my God, I thought, you know, of all my lifetime experiences, I thought I was ready, but I was not. So there might be something to that there when they say, you know, we're not ready to, to really see everything, know everything.
0: It might simply slow or obstruct the progress they've been making on this grand program that's been underway for generations. Perhaps it's too disruptive to both human stability and non-human productivity. I want to ask you about the humans with high level clearances, those working in the black world, deep secrecy who are also abductees, and I don't mean my labs here. I mean humans in sensitive security roles who are also experiencers of non-human contact or anomalous events. Have they come to you? What are they to do? Where are they to go to address their trauma, their ontological shock?
1: I mean, I've had a, a few people uh, coming to me that have, have had security clearances and in, in real sensitive positions. Um, one of them had told me a few years ago that um, that he was told or he was asked during one of his abductions that why are you making why are you making um, weapons that will kill people, you know, he was in that particular area of the government that, you know, making weaponry, and whatever they do. And um, after that, it was, you know, he was thinking about what am I, you know, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And he was rethinking um, his position and whether he wanted to continue doing that. Now I had only worked for him with him a couple times. So I don't know what, um, cause he was out of state and I don't know what eventually he decided to do. Um, but there, you know, they, people that are in these high positions and um, these uh, clearances, and I mean, they have a sensitive position. Um, they, they are conflicted of they know what's happening they know they know the government side where you know being kept secret or you know they're actually lying to the american public and and then they're having these experiences of course it's really difficult because you know that's their career that's their livelihood you know most of them have families and mortgages. And so um, they're, you know, they're in a real dilemma.
0: What's been the most difficult part of your job over the last 30 years in working with abductees and experiencers?
1: What made made my my work more difficult over the years was when the internet started getting, you know, bigger and bigger. And then there was, um, Photoshopping and all of this. And, uh, you know, when I started my practice in 91, we didn't have all that. And um, now there's so much information out there and so much false information. Uh, I mean, everywhere, YouTube and where, you know, there's so many different websites. And so I tell my clients, you know, because they, they, of course, everybody goes on the you know, on the internet. And I just say, just be careful what you're reading and what you're, um, you know, what you're falling for, what you believe, because there is so much, um, you know, information out there that, is, that is false. Uh, there's a lot of disinformation out there. And um, what I tell them is, is when they're going through the process of uh, exploring their experiences, to just stay off the internet, try not to read anything um, until you know they feel like okay, they're you know they're satisfied with say they had ten sessions or they worked with me for a couple of years, you know that they feel that yeah you know what I experienced was real, but you know the internet has made it very very difficult. I just wish sometimes it, you know it never existed. Um, And then, um, and just, you know, over the years working with clients who have, have been told that these hybrid babies are theirs and they have to love these children for them to survive because they don't have that, the alien beings don't have that capability of what we have, you know, uh, the love and compassion for, for our families and children and animals. So when I've seen the heartbreak during many hundreds of sessions of people seeing their children, and then they know that they can't bring their children back with them. And they're always asking, you know, can I see them again? And they're told, you'll, you'll be able to see them again and they'll, they're taken time and time again back to see the children uh during the different ages and asked to bond with them and uh it's just it's just really sad it's a very heartbreaking and they do break down in men and women both because they feel this love for these hybrid children and they can't be part of their lives. And some of them are very angry. So that's been very difficult.
0: Gosh, it just makes you wonder how these beings are inept in some ways. We know from human development research that the attachment issues that arise from babies having such infrequent contact with their birth parents are catastrophic. Attachment in those early years is critical beyond words. And without it, People become deeply wounded and damaged. Handing a baby to a mother to hold them once in a blue moon seems absurd, a disaster.
1: Oh, it does. But it looks like from the research that the hybrids have been, are being perfected over the years and that many people, experiencers, abductees, feel that they have come across hybrids here walking around on earth. And where you pass by them and you wouldn't even know. Uh, And it's not until you stop and talk to them. There's something about them. They'll look at you and tell them as if they could read your mind or see through you. The conversation they have with them is different than just a, a normal human being. So I've had several reports of that. And I think, you know, well, why wouldn't they be down here? You know, um, others have been told that their children are on other planets um, surviving there, um, that they're not ready to come down here on Earth. So this, you know, it it just, I feel like the hybridization program is is central to what the alien Alien agenda is. It just seems to be a huge operation, and you know, maybe these hybrids are are eventually going to be coming down. You know, more and more. We probably have more here than what we realize, because I've only had spoken to say a handful of abductees that have told me that they feel they've run across one. I mean, I had a couple. Actually, one very strange experience when i was lecturing in roswell a few years ago I was this little boy was in my lecture and he looked like he was about 10 years old but he had you know kind of like strange kind of a, a moppy kind of looking hair um but you wouldn't you know he you look at him and he looked like a little 10 year old boy just interested in you know the subject but it was when he asked me questions you know, it was the way he worded it, because I was showing the triangles that come up on people overnight. And, and then he asked a question about the triangles and how scientists are doing this and this and that. And, and it just, I, I can't even remember most of the question because it threw me the way he, it was not like a 10 year old child would ask a question. And it wasn't just me it was another speaker upstairs in the in the um museum he had him in his lecture and he came and said did you have a little boy in your lecture i said i did and he even said it was it was he was different um so you know they show up at conferences Uh, i know that of other instances where this has happened and I think it's going to happen more and more. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, I couldn't have said this on, you know, in an interview uh, about hybrids being here among us. But as I mentioned before, I have to go where the research is taking me. Because I work with abductees and experiencers one on one, very intimately. And, you know, these are things I'm being told.
0: When it's reported that over time the hybrids have been increasingly improved or perfected, I wonder if it's just the exterior. So yes, their appearance allows them to mingle undetected (laughs) in the general human population, but is that any indication of their inner world having been improved in equal measure? This is a problem we already have on Earth. Lots of high technology and low levels of consciousness, people with a 10-year-old's mentality controlling nuclear weapons. Do you have feelings about this imbalance as it pertains to hybrids?
1: Uh, you know, I think you're right about their the exterior. I mean, like I said, you, they could sit next to you at a conference. You'd, you could walk by them and, and they look absolutely human, nor, you know, normal. But they're still able to read your mind, and I don't feel at this point that they're completely or they're going to be completely human as we are with emotions and feelings and all of that. They're going to be different, and I think, I, mean, I know one of my clients is very concerned about it, because he feels, you know, if they come down here and they're reading everybody's mind, I mean, we're not going to have any privacy in what we do. It's not like living, you know, side by side with with them and they're going to be totally like us. So that's, that's something to be concerned about. I know my colleague and friend, Dr. David Jacobs, you know, he wrote his book, I think it's Walking Among Us or Aliens Among Us. One of one of his latest books. He feels uh, that they're going to come down and basically take us over. And I think that's what my one client, you know, is fearful about. Now I'm trying to remain a little bit more positive that you know it's not going to be like uh, invasion of the body snatchers, but when they're as as they're coming down here uh they they are still going to be more advanced so yeah I don't know it's it's I keep my eyes and ears open as I'm talking to uh, experiencers abductees of uh, when they come across these people I came across that one little boy I think there was another instance at another conference that happened and I am not remembering, quite remembering right now several years ago, but I know they they do show up at conferences. I know it sounds crazy, but I can only report what I have been told and what I experienced.
0: Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Yvonne Smith. To hear it, just become a patron or a Plus member. Click the link in the show notes to do so What would I do without you patrons and you PLUS members? I'd be back to my old route delivering copies of Miniature Donkey Talk. It's just a magazine that talks about miniature donkeys. Unless it's a magazine about miniature donkeys that talk about small asses. Without patrons and PLUSers, I'd be back down in the coal mines with the seam, explosions and the tunnel collapses. But enough about your mama. Thanks to you plusers and patrons, I don't have to get severe food poisoning from my former gig as a pet food taster. And by the way, isn't all food poisoning severe? Still, it was better than cleaning the portable toilets or cleaning the crime scenes or cleaning the sewers and you couldn't pay me enough to clean another portable toilet crime scene in a sewer. But enough about your mama. And sure, being an endangered animal masturbator was a job, but a weird one because the gorillas aren't paying me. So who is? I'm on to you, Jane Goodall. She's probably watching. She's always watching. Ah, endangered animal masturbator. That job, I don't miss it. But there's a silverback in Uganda that sure misses me.
2: That's true.
0: To become a patron or a pluser.
2: Click link now in spectaculum.
0: Hosting aliens and artists is always fascinating. Each week I learn new things about the relationship between human creativity and non-human entities. This week I discovered Neil Young's After the Gold Rush is laced with saucer references. Then I found Elton John's song, I've Seen Saucers. That was followed by learning that the song, I Ran, by Flock of Seagulls, is purportedly about alien abduction. <laughs> There's a Mick West joke in there somewhere, but someday's Mick West joke feels redundant. But each of these musical curiosities were bested when I caught this anomalous curveball. George Clinton and Bootsy Collins had a shared UFO sighting that included missing time. Yet another compelling twist in the seemingly endless maze that is inexplicable phenomena impacting the lives of artists. Bootsy Collins and George Clinton have spoken publicly about this case many times in Rolling Stone, a Reddit AMA, even a Gibson Guitar article. But my favorite is a YouTube interview with Bootsy and George side-by-side, recounting the event to YouTuber Star Child Daryl. Here is a transcribed excerpt of that interview. Bootsy. I'm looking at George like, okay, I ain't trying to see what's happening here because George is sitting here and I ain't trying to be scared. First of all, I'm young and among. So George, sitting over here, like you know, like talking about the mothership, we talking about this, it's like you know, ain't nothing can touch us, and nothing can see us cause I got George with me, I'm cool, everything's cool. Then I see him looking crazy, and he tells me, do you think you can step on it? I totally lost it then, cause it was like, if he's scared, you know where that puts me. George. Just about the time I said that, it hit the car. On my side of the car, heated up like it was mercury in a thermometer. It was like shiny, goldish looking. You know I'm colorblind, but I could tell it had a shine to it. It rolled off the side like oil and water. Bootsy. But first of all, there was some cars on us. First. George. Right? There was some cars behind us, see? First, I didn't think of this for almost 10 years. We didn't stop to think about this. The first curious thing about the first time is that it was in daylight. First peculiar thing. Bootsy. Right. George. You could see the light. Daylight. It hit the ground, in front and in back. I looked back. There was a car behind us. Headlights were on. When it hit the car, my first concern was all the street lights was out. Bootsy. yep. George, blinking out, about ten blocks ahead of us you could see lights on and cars, a few cars going by. I said step on it. We get down there to where those other cars were at, we'll probably be alright. Behind us, the car that was just behind us was not there. Now we thought of, I heard someone telling me one day about time lapse, and I thought about it only takes three minutes from where we saw the first one in broad daylight. To where the other two hit us. It had to be early in the day because we were... It was early in the daytime. Bootsy. Right. George. But by the time we identified what was happening then, we was worried about car lights and the street lights. Bootsy. Right. George. So that, to me, I called Bootsy up after, you know. We never talked about this. You know? We got to my house. Bootsy. Because we wasn't trying to, you know, we wasn't trying to... George, figure it out. Bootsy. Yeah, not at all. So in a nutshell, one moment Bootsy and George are driving. It's broad daylight. The vehicle is hit by a beam apparently multiple times. The next moment it is nighttime. The cars have their headlights on and the street lights are flickering off. In the span of what should have been 3 or 4 minutes, it had gone from day to night add to that it took them 10 years to finally think about this incongruity speaking to rolling stone clinton was adamant he and bootsy were not high or drunk at the time and that the substance that hit the car was like mercury out of a thermometer it gets better clinton gave a lecture on outer space at the british library in london and told the guardian newspaper that it was 11 in the morning broad daylight when this happened and that he and Bootsy were just minutes from home. But when they arrived, it was late and his daughter was ready for bed. Collins told The Guardian, quote, Time disappeared on that journey. We were taken to a weird place. During a Reddit AMA, Collins related that, quote, We were driving into Toronto together and we were contacted by a UFO. We saw a flashing light hit the ground first in front of our car. Three or four minutes later, we saw it again, two times, hit the street. Then the light hit the car, and the light turned, liquid like mercury from a thermometer. Beat it up and rolled off the car. All the street lights went out slowly as we passed. We looked behind us, and it was dark. Bootsy wasn't scared, he thought I knew what was going on. We were not high because we had just crossed the border. We eventually arrived home and walked in the house and my daughter said, you're all acting like you just saw a ghost. I didn't even think about it until later. Why were we seeing light in daylight? I had to call Bootsy to confirm what time of day it was. We lost a lot of time that day and didn't realize it until years later. This case reminds me of the Moody Blues event, circa 66 or 67 in which that band was headed home after a gig and pulled over to interact with a landed cigar-shaped craft in the adjacent field. The encounter purportedly changed the creative direction of the band toward a more cosmic orientation, which characterized so much of their success. In volume 36 number 2 of Flying Saucer Review from 1991, that event is recounted in full, including three of Graham's own drawings of the craft, a diagram of the object relative to the A6 roadway they were on, and a rendering of one of the beings ostensibly piloting the craft. Another member of the Moody Blues would later have a second sighting, which was documented in Brad Steiger's book, The Fellowship. All this stuff is in the show notes. If you're interested in past life regression or taking a deeper look at inexplicable events including contact with non-human entities, consider booking one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, Certified Transpersonal Hypnotherapist, Certified Death Doula. Just go to theliminalmuse.com or click the link in the show notes. Also, check out theexperiencergroup.com, a membership site for experiencers of anomalous events of all kind. Go to TheExperiencerGroup.com for a free trial.